Tonight's reading from the New Testament is Galatians chapter 5, 16 through 26. It can be found on page 4 of your bulletin. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me as we pray? God, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. We know that both of those things have to happen. It's not enough that we would just hear something that's enlightening or interesting, but it must command our hearts if we're to change. And you know each one of us intimately and perfectly. So many stories in this room. So many struggles, so many hopes. Would you right now do your wonderful work in our midst? And we'll thank you in advance for it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this is the second week that we were looking at the topic of power. Um, God's power. Um, The power that he gives to us so that we might be renewed that we might change, that we might become the people that God has intended us to be, all of us. And last week, we talked about the nature, the what of that power. What does it look like? And this week, I want us to focus on how do you apply it? How do we begin to apply the power of God to our lives, whether it be personally, in this room here, corporately, in our city, because he means us to do that. And it's in applying God's power that the seriousness of our condition comes to light. It's as you actually try to apply these things and look at your life close up, that you begin to see your need for the power of God in a new way. Now, let me just give one example. Uh, one particular way, um, for instance, trying to uh, deal with the struggle of being 
too driven. Okay, that's something that's not unfamiliar to people in this city. Being someone that is too driven, right? Heavy type A, type A, type A sort of thing. Listen to this analysis or description of a driven person. A driven person is most often gratified only by accomplishments and preoccupied with the symbols of them, like title, position, the size of their office. They are usually caught in the uncontrolled pursuit of expansion, needing to be part of things that are bigger or more successful. They have limited regard for integrity and growing progress toward more deceit. They have limited undeveloped people skills because projects and achievements are most important. They tend to have a win-lose attitude, that is, life is a zero-sum game. They're abnormally busy, wouldn't know what to do with themselves if they suddenly had less to do, and often possess volcanic anger, which any serious disagreement or disruption brings on. I don't know if that hit home at all. Uh, it certainly does as I think about my own life. But what I want you to notice is that's just one area. We could have easily talked about greed or laziness or any other struggle that we had. That is just one struggle among many. And it makes us understand what we're up against here when we're talking about change. How does someone with those tendencies actually change? That's a big question, an important question. And what we find in the Christian gospel is this, something that is utterly different from every religion and every philosophy out there on how you change. I know that's a bold statement, but I will tell you in my own experience for years and in my own understanding, it's completely true. The Christian faith offers something utterly different, and that is because it is changed by the power of grace. The Christian faith is the only place you will find total, free, all grace. And that begins to become the trigger for change. Now, for some of you, maybe that's a new thought. You're intrigued by it, and you're thinking, okay, I, I want to hear a little bit more about that. Others of you, you nod your head and go, yeah, I've heard that before especially from Glenn. He talks about it a lot, right? The church is named after it, right? This is... But, but the thing is, if we know it so well, why are we failing so much? If we understand grace so well, why are we struggling so much to change? I think it's probably two reasons. One is uh, we, don't really, we don't really understand how big our problem is how bad our sin is. You know, one of the things that happens uh, as you grow, I think, in the faith is it, it, sometimes folks have represented it this way. If you could, it, I wish I had sort of a, a board, I could go like that one. But, you know, if you kind of do the greater or less than sign like that, what happens in life is this. The closer that you get to God and see Him, the more the bottom line reveals your heart. The lower stuff, 
how low you can go in your integrity. But in the middle of that thing is a cross. It's Christ. It's what he's done for us. That's really just a representation of what we're talking about here. And in the book of the Galatians, we have one of the clearest explanations of the Christian gospel, of what it means to understand grace. In the first half of it, the Apostle Paul is basically defining and defending the uniqueness of the Christian gospel. In the second half, he begins to try to apply it to our lives. It's my belief many of us live in the first half. I might say to you, uh, do you believe that God totally forgives you unconditionally and by his love and grace? And a lot of heads in the room might go, yeah. The question is, how are we doing applying that to day-to-day life? That's what I want to look at today. And Galatians 5 basically says there are two strategies for renewal. One is living by the flesh. The other is living by the spirit. I'm going to try to unpack what that means. Let's first talk about living by the flesh. Living by the flesh. Now, when Paul says that, he's not referring to being a human being. Of course, you have to live in the flesh. You are an enfleshed person. You're supposed to eat and drink. He's not saying some of the errors that you found in the early church where they said things like, you know, sexual intimacy or evil because it's fleshly. Not saying that. In fact, Paul would condemn philosophies that taught asceticism where people thought that they could gain favor in God's eyes if they denied themselves stuff. He calls it a doctrine of demons in the book of Timothy. He's not saying that. What he's talking about is desire. That's what he means by living by the flesh, desire. And in that, he's not saying that desire in and of itself is bad. There are some you know, Eastern forms of religion that will teach that desire is the problem. You know, what you really need to go for in spirituality is become a person that is sort of like neutral, that has no desires, and that's the height of holiness. That's not what the Christian faith teaches. God gave you desire. God gave you passion, but sin corrupts it. He's talking about dark desires. He's talking about the sin-desiring part of us versus the God-desiring part of us. And that shows up in this list of vices, He mentions sexual immorality, which is having sexual intimacy out of the covenant of marriage. He talks about impurity, that's unnatural sexual relationships. He talks about sensuality, that's uncontrollable sexual activity where someone just, you know, there's no boundaries. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on that because in a couple weeks I want to preach a sermon on renewed sexuality. But he mentions some other things on the list. By idolatry and sorcery or witchcraft in some translations, it's basically trusting in the occult, trusting in the occult for your future, for your needs, instead of trusting in God for that. He mentions substance abuse, drinking. And when he mentions orgies, it's most likely drinking parties that he's talking about. People just totally getting engulfed with alcohol. But many of the sins he mentions are communal sins. That's the lion's share, selfish ambition, competitiveness, jealousy, argumentativeness, picking fights, outbursts, permanent warring groups. These are some of the things on the list. And these lists are not to be exhaustive, either one. Paul is likely referring, first of all, he's reflecting ancient lists that had these virgin 
virtue and vice list, but he's also talking about some of the sins in the Galatian community. Now, our culture, no doubt, would acknowledge some of them, not all of them, but our culture would say, yeah, you know, I don't think it's good to be a jealous person. I don't think it's good to be a warring person all the time, right? <laughs> Part of the time it's okay. But the insight I think this passage gives us isn't so much the list. Like I said, there were lots of lists. The insight is why we do these things. And I want to summarize it by two, in two ways. First of all, it represents the belief that we might be delivered by our desires. That we might be delivered by our desires. Now, in America, desire is everything. Fulfilling my desires is everything. It's understood to be the key to happiness. It's even understood to be a right. We are very big on these are my desires and they must be fulfilled. But we often don't see how that works against us. How do these vices get a hold of you and I? How do these sins get a hold of you and I? It's rarely because you woke up one day and said, you know something? I think I want to be a jealous person. You know something? I really think I'm going to give myself to envy this year. That sounds like that would be good for me. You know, not many of us say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to have relations with any person I can find because it'll help me feel great about myself. That's not how we get hooked in these vices. It rarely comes from outright evil. Where it comes from is we over-desire good things. We over-desire good things. And that's really what that Greek word gets at. It talks about inordinate desire, all-consuming desire. I mean, you could see this in the first pages of the Bible. When sin shows up on the scene, sinful desire, what do you find? God has given the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, he has lavished the earth and every good gift on the earth upon them. But it's not enough. They want this one thing that he said they couldn't have yet. In the book of James, in the New Testament, it's said like this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. We have desires. But the problem is the way that they get out of control. You know, the desire of sexual intimacy is a good thing. It's not a good thing when you treat it like a drive-through relationship or a drug addiction, where I need to get my fix. Having goals is a good thing. It's not a good thing when our goals drive us toward jealousy, dividing, setting people against one another so we can get what we want. Don't you see, it's the good thing, the root the problem we have is we perceive this good thing that I'm after, but then our desires just take over. They get monstrous. And we think, if I don't have this good thing in the way that I want it, when I want it, it'll be the end of me. And Paul says that those lives that are dominated by these practices, that they're habitual, he tells uh, those in Galatia, those that live that way will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that is a word of warning for anybody that professes to be a Christian here. 
if your life is dominated by these behaviors, and we'll get to this in a little bit, and, and you really don't have much care to change it, that should concern you. That's what he says. But it's also, living by the flesh is the belief that we will be delivered by achievement. I was reading an article this past week on post-Olympic depression. I mean, I struggled with it, and I'm sure that, you know, anyway. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but, um, you know, these athletes for years and years, right, their lives are just committed. That's all they do. You know, swim, bike, every, every day since they were little, little, little. And then they finally get to that place, the world stage. This opportunity to compete with the best of the best, the eyes of the world on them, all the sponsorships, all that stuff, right? Victoria Pendleton was a British cyclist who won gold in Beijing. Listen to what she says. You have all this, you have all this build up for one day. And when it's over, it's, oh, is that it? You're relieved, but kind of sad and numb. People think it's hard when you lose, but it's almost easier to come second because you have something to aim for when you finish. When you win, you suddenly feel lost. Post-competition depression, post-achievement depression, and it doesn't just have to be the Olympics, right? It could be a number of things. It could be a deal that you work to close and it finally closes. It could be, you know, a goal of your, your high school degree or your college degree or your graduate degree, something that you had always had your eyes upon. It could be your marriage. All these times I thought if I just could get married and then, wow. What she's getting at there and what that quote is getting at is basically when you and I make the core of our identity and our self-worth and what the Bible would call your sense of righteousness, when we make that achieving a standard, you will always be prone not only to depression, but you will be more prone to the vices on this list. People that are living by that standard. Let me try to explain that. Now, for the Apostle Paul, he's writing to a people, a group of people that had made religious observance and rituals their standard. If we meet these standards, then we're going to basically be righteous in God's sight, have favor in God's sight. But it doesn't have to be a religious standard. I mean, it can be anything, right? There are many, many standards it could be. The standard could be intelligence. If I could make this level of intelligence, it might be in shapeness. You know, you're constantly someone that's thinking about your outward appearance, looking at yourself in the mirror. It might be who you know. That standard. You know, years ago there was a film that won an Academy Award called American Beauty. And uh, in it, uh, Annette Bening plays the character of a wife who's desperate to succeed in real estate. She has to succeed in real estate. And it actually leads her to have an affair with the real estate king in her area. Well, how how does that happen? Well, I thought the, the film was making great insight. You know, if I can't be the best, then somehow I will I will join, I will be in the same circle of that standard. 
people that are driven by these standards find as they elevate and serve them, they start to lose their integrity. That's what Paul is saying. And it's not that goals and standards are bad or, for goodness sakes, that the law of God is bad. The law of God he gave. But, you know, the law of God has wonderful things it does. The law of God um, expresses, teaches us what love should look like. The law of God teaches us what the character of God looks like. The law of God gives us wisdom, knowing how to live. The law of God convicts us of our sin, and it drives us to God's mercy. The law of God restrains sin in the world and injustice in the world, but there are things that the law of God can't do. The law of God cannot bring your conscience rest. The law of God cannot make you righteous. The law of God has no power in and of itself to change one thing about you. The kind of change that we're talking about here, the law of God itself cannot do that. But I find many Christians um, know they're saved by grace, but they're trying to be renewed by the law. Functionally, as we're trying to change, where we put our attention is not unpacking the grace of God in our lives, but focusing in on what we should do and the laws and the commandments. The theological way to say that is we understand grace about justification. We don't understand grace when it comes to sanctification, how you begin to change. In chapter 3, verse 3, the Apostle Paul Uh, says a statement that's really a center statement. And basically in chapter 5, he's picking up on the statement. He says, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? What he's saying there is, after beginning with the Spirit and coming to know God through Christ and His grace, are you now trying to change by human effort primarily? And that's a question I want to put to you. I want you to think about an area in your life where you're struggling. What is your strategy? What functionally has been your approach? Because what it does is it's like confusing the hammer for the builder. It's like confusing the light bulb for the electricity. The law of God is a tool that God uses. It's not the way that we change. But let me move now to living by the Spirit. And I want to say two things about this. Living by the Spirit leads to a new day and a new way. A new day and a new way. Now, sometimes when God is trying to teach us about all the things that He gives us through a relationship with Jesus Christ, He will use different terms. One is, or different perspectives. One perspective is location. You know, in real estate, they would say everything, location, location, location is everything. Well, in the Christian gospel, location, location, location is a really big deal. Listen to this verse from the book of Colossians. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's talking about a spiritual address change that occurs for those that come to know Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of times we like to... uh, you know, look up what's the wealthiest zip code in the country. God gives believers the wealthiest zip code in the country. That is people that have inheritance with Jesus Christ. So location's one way, but time and tense, time and tense, like past, present, future tense, is another way that God informs us of this. In verse 24, you read, 
And those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, past tense, the flesh with its passion and desires. Now what he's doing there, he's looking back to when Jesus Christ was crucified and nailed to the cross. And the Christian gospel would say there was something you know, very clear that happened there, right? The Christian faith teaches as Jesus was being crucified and judged and punished and becoming a curse, he was doing it for the sins of those that would believe in him. He was taking the judgment and the punishment the true guilt that you and I have in our lives. This was what God was doing. But he wasn't just dying for our sins. He was dying to sin for us. That means he was dying to the power that sin reigns over us. Not only the guilt of sin, but the power of sin. The power of living in the flesh. So you'll find these wonderful past tense words. Don't ever rush by them in the gospel. You'll find words like, you have been justified. It's not a question, gee, I hope when I make it to the end and I meet God, he'll think I was righteous enough. Not in the Christian gospel. You have been justified already before God because of Jesus Christ. You have been made righteous, not will I be righteous. And even it goes so far to say you have been glorified. It's as if you are already before God in the future in heaven and all the bad stuff has been taken away and all the sadness is taken away and there you are shining as a true child of God. Why the past tense? Because it's a done deal. It's already been completed by God. But also the future perspective helps us. You'll hear Paul mention in this the kingdom of God. He mentions that phrase. You know, if today you discovered that you were due to inherit a huge sum of money, tomorrow would be a lot different, wouldn't it? You would live differently based on the promise of that future. Well, there's a gospel analogy there. You know what one of the names the Holy Spirit is given in the Bible? In the book of Ephesians, Paul says that the promised Holy Spirit is our guarantor. He's the guarantee of our inheritance in God. When the Holy Spirit comes to take residence in people that believe in Christ, His very presence isn't just, oh, I'm glad the Holy Spirit's there to comfort me. I'm glad He gives me strength. He kind of reminds me God loves me. He is a deposit. He is a deposit in you that He who began a good work will bring it to completion. And so it makes us think a little bit different about change. Listen to this verse out of Colossians again. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. You have died. I should be looking at a bunch of dead people. If you believe in Christ, you are di- you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will with appear, appear with him in glory. Can you see yourself there? Can you see yourself there? Can you see yourself there, holy and blameless in his sight? Can you see yourself there as a royal son or daughter? Can you see yourself there raised to the throne room of God? Because if you can, that'll make a difference in whether you will be a renewed person or you won't. I hope you can see yourself there. 
Now, one of the things we learn about the brain with all this research is the brain anticipates yesterday for today. However yesterday went, the brain goes, well, today's going to be the same thing. That's why we get so depressed. And what God is trying to do is some brain surgery on us here, that you begin to reckon your present by the future. We are, the, the gospel would say we are in a new age. If you are someone that's a believer in Christ, you are in a whole new order. You don't belong to the old age anymore. You belong to the age of the future. Amen? But it's not only a new day, it's a new way. And I need to move along here. Two things. One, we're freed for renewal. We're no longer under the law. In verse 18, he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are no longer under the law. Now, does that mean that we're lawless? No, he's not saying that we're lawless. What he's saying is that the threat of the law's judgment on you, the guilt that comes from the law of God, the power of the law is no longer what you're operating from. Those things have been taken, they have been broken and nailed to the cross by Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came under the law. God could have just showed up, but what he did, he became a person like you and I. Why did he have to do that? There's lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is he had to come under the law. He had to walk the law that you and I failed to walk. He had to do that because God doesn't just demand that you don't sin. He demands that we're righteous people. Of course we know that. It's not enough just not to screw up. you got to do good things. And so he comes and he lives 33 years under the law so that when he dies on the cross, he not only takes judgment, he then credits his righteous life to the bank account of those that trust in him. And they found themselves righteous. So the law no longer holds threat over me. But also, we're not only freed for renewal, we're empowered for renewal. In verse 18, you see this word, led, led by the Spirit. Now, that verb means active personal involvement. Active personal involvement. And then you go on and it says walking with the Spirit. And you know what that word meant in its original connotation? Walking in line behind a leader. And so what we're saying here is that the Holy Spirit is personally involved in the life of believers. But let me, let me try to put it this way. I want you to imagine right now staring at the thing that you're struggling with. I want you to imagine right now staring at that challenge, that struggle, that vice in your life. And I want to ask you this. What is between you and that struggle? If you think nothing's in between, you haven't understood the gospel. Because what the Apostle Paul is saying here is God the Holy Spirit is between you and your struggle. He is the one that is right there. You are lined up behind him. He is personally involved, and he is taking the lead. He is fighting the fight first. He's the one that stands. He's like that huge offensive lineman that just blows out a big hole so that people can run through. And you might get a tug on your shirt, or someone might trip you up, but you're not going to fall because he's opened it up. The other thing we're told here, it says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other. Now, oftentimes, when you and I struggle, when we struggle, uh, this is what we tend to do. 
we get discouraged and go, man, I can't believe I'm struggling again. This must mean um, I'm not a very good Christian. I'm one of the weakest Christians. It must mean God has left me. My friends, my dear friends, it's the very opposite of what we're being told here. The presence, the evidence that you are struggling is evidence that the Holy Spirit lives in you. The struggle is a sign that he is there. If you weren't struggling, that should worry you. So however bad you're struggling today, and however bad you're failing, take heart because it's evidence that God is in you. That's what he's saying there. But lastly, we're told, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He doesn't say you might not gratify the desires of the flesh, but you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And that is because the Spirit and the flesh are opposed to one another. What he's saying is there, if you and I continue to yield to the Holy Spirit, it's a win-win game. You can't lose. You can't walk with the Holy Spirit and give yourself to Him and lose. What you find is progressive victory and strength because the Spirit is always opposed. And if you get in the Spirit, you've got God on your side. Now, I haven't spent a lot of time on the fruit of the Spirit. And usually that's the little subtitle over this thing, right? Maybe you're sitting there going, man, you know, he's got two minutes left. He hasn't even talked about the fruit of the Spirit. And I'll tell you why I haven't talked about it. It's been intentional. Because most time when people go here, they go to the vice list and go, that's a lot of bad stuff I don't want. And then they jump to the fruit and go, this is what I ought to be like. And that's like going to the grocery store and thinking that uh, apples come from the grocery store. That's like showing up, looking at a bunch of apples and go, look at this. This fine grocery store produces apples. You know, you have no idea that there was a tree and there was a root and there was something that actually produced the fruit. Unless you and I understand everything that I've been belaboring, you will not produce fruit because fruit doesn't come from anywhere and it doesn't come from the works of the flesh and it doesn't come from even your spiritual work. Fruit, there's a difference. One is called works of the flesh. The other is called fruit of the spirit. One is worked at. One is provided. The Holy Spirit provides those things. And so let me just enclose really quick, try to take four of those pieces of fruit. And by the way, you know, it's not like they're just one piece. Like, I'm really good at gentleness, but I'm, I hate people. You know, you got, you're, supposed to be, you're supposed to be all of them, okay? Just so you know that. Don't just pick your favorite. I'm really a faithful person, but, you know, people, hate, people don't want to be around me ever. Okay. Love. How do you grow in love? Do this. Tomorrow morning, I want you to take five minutes and I want you to meditate on the love of God. Take five minutes and think about the fact that God loved me before he even made the earth. That God loved me when I was powerless, before I could do anything right or wrong, he loved me. That God loved me so much, even though it took the giving of his beloved son, he would not hold him back because he wanted to love me. That God loves me so much that he has such a great love, he can't wait till I'm united with him so he can pile more love in me. Spend five minutes thinking about the love of God and tell me how you feel. Imagine your neighbor comes to the door and says, man, I'm sorry my car's dead after you've meditated for five minutes. And he says, would you take me to work? I doubt you're going to slam the door and go, get out of here. Love, we love because he first loved us. Joy, 
Learned an interesting thing this week about the brain, okay? This was actually from one of our members who's at grad school. And, uh, you know, they, they were learning about the brain. We all know about stages of development in the brain. You know, zero to six is a big time. You're developing all sorts of things, emotion, frontal lobe, all that stuff. And then, actually, I learned, too, that the peak of the brain is 22. That doesn't make me feel good. But, you know, if you're 22 for the next five years, like you're at the peak of the brain power. After that, it starts to go downhill. But what they found was there is not just years. There is an emotional state that is ripe for brain growth. And you know what that emotional state is? Joy. Joy is the emotional state that enables us to grow and develop. That's what the research is telling us. But even if you didn't believe that, how do you grow in joy? I don't know any better way to grow in joy than to know that God rejoices over you. If you don't believe God rejoices over you, how will you have joy in your life? That's the fount of joy. Or we could more, the faithfulness, which is to be true to your word and true to your commitment. You know, one of the great things about God, he's not like us. He's not an opportunist. God doesn't throw us over for the weekend because there's better plans. You know, God isn't someone that keeps his options open because there might be a better relationship in store. He is faithful to his word and committed all the way in. How do you learn faithfulness? You come to know that God. And lastly, peace. When God has quieted you because you know that he has taken his wrath and he's put it on his son and you are reconciled to him in peace. And then you begin to see how he just spreads that peace in your life. You know, I've been a Christian now for 30 years or something like that. And I often think, I look at my life. I look at the friendships I get to have. I, get, I look at what I get to do. I feel the sunshine. I look at my, I just see the way God has worked his peace in my life. Man, I could tell you about my other years before that. They were not peaceful years. And so, fruit grows as it knows. As we grow in the gospel, this is where the power comes from. Let's pray. God, thank you for what you give us in Christ. Would you help us to believe it, that we might grow in Christ's name. Amen.